Al Brady was the FBI's most wanted criminal when he was shot and killed in Bangor, Maine on October 12, 1937. What led this evil man from Indianapolis to his death in Maine's Queen City? You're listening to the Jumping Function Podcast, Episode 16, The Story of Al Brady. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Jumping Frenchman Podcast, a show about Maine history and culture with a taste for the weird. I am your host, Joseph Ouellette. A quick backstory here. If you hear my fan going on in the background, I'm going to do some noise reduction. Hopefully, that will fix it. But if you hear my fan in the background uh, today, uh, it is currently 91 degrees uh, where I am. It is the end of July here as I am recording. So I have my fan on behind me because it is way too hot for me to have it off the way I usually will when I'm recording. It's not the show's about. We're not going to talk about how hot it is in Maine in July. Uh, we're here to talk about Al Brady, who was the FBI's most wanted criminal when he came to visit Bangor, Maine in 1937. So Alfred James Brady, better known as Al Brady, was born in Kentland, Indiana on October 25th, 1910, where he lived until his father died in a farming accident. He and his mother, Clara Brady, then moved to the nearby town of North Salem, where Al Brady attended school. His mother remarried to a man named John Biddle, who was allegedly abusive towards Al Brady. John Biddle would later die by gunshot wounds that the coroner called probably accidental. Soon after the death of John Biddle, Clara and Al would move to Indianapolis. As a teenager, Al Brady allegedly experimented with arson and developed a bit of a temper. Unfortunately, tragedy struck Mr. Brady again when his mother died in 1926. He was only 16 and was left under the care of a man named Ira Wells. Al was employed at various jobs until 1932, when, which was quite frankly good considering this was during the Great Depression and many people were losing their jobs. When he was still in Cantland, he worked as a mechanic, but in Indianapolis, he worked at the clothing store. Uh, then, as an errand boy at a hot tamale stand, he then started to, quote, wander around. Brady was already well into his life of crime at this point. Uh, we mentioned the arson, but in 1929, he tried to rob an Indianapolis grocer. He pretended to have a gun and was shot three times by a patrolman who caught him fleeing the scene. No one heard from Brady again until July 10th when he was arrested for vagrancy under the alias of James Reed. An old friend stepped in and got the charge dropped. It is important to clarify that thousands of people were charged with vagrancy during the Great Depression. Once again, Al Brady hit the road. About 11 days later on July 21st, Brady was found in possession of stolen property. He was sentenced to 180 days at in the Indiana State Farm, which was a farm owned by the state of Indiana meant to rehabilitate less violent criminals and make them do farm work. While working in the fields, tending to dairy cows and or casting bricks, Al Brady conversed with the other criminals and instead of turning over a new leaf, he decided to take what the other criminals did wrong and become a better criminal. Upon release, Al Brady went to visit his old guardian, Ira Wells, at Iris Farm near Hanover, Indiana. This is where he met James Dalhover, a bootlegger who worked at the farm next to Ira Wells' farm. He's an important part of Al's story that will come up a little bit later. (music) 
Beatty returned to Indianapolis that summer to work at a mattress factory, then a welding job at a car factory. I love to work on cars, but he didn't always do so legally, and by August 1935, he was back behind bars for five months for automobile theft. He was released in January and went to a pool hall where he was teased about his height and age by an Indianapolis gang he attempted to join. It's there where the famous, I'm going to make John Dillinger look like a piker line comes from. Also in 1935, Brady had formed a gang of children that would burgle and vandalize grocery stores. At the end of the day, he'd take most of the loot the kids gathered. Of course, this wasn't the infamous Brady gang. Uh, weirdly enough, Brady stayed employed throughout all of this. Brady also had eyes on bigger prizes that the kids couldn't help him with, and this is where James Dahlhofer comes in. Brady and Dahlhofer were already stealing cars and stripping them for parts together in the winter of 35-36. Dahlhofer was a lot like Brady, short, thin, and about home life, and he turned that into a life of crime. He and his brother robbed a grocery store in 1917. After the incident, the two boys were sent to a reform school for 16 months. He moved around a lot, um, Indiana, Cincinnati, Kentucky, back to Ohio, Arizona, Cincinnati a third time. He got married, had two kids, back to Indiana. He spent some time in various prisons from Kentucky, which he broke out of to New Mexico, usually for running moonshine during Prohibition. But the charge in Mexico was for car theft. Uh, after being discharged in New Mexico, they were sent back to Kentucky, where he would be charged with assault with an attempt to kill stemming from his escape. After serving his sentence there, he moved back to Cincinnati, then to California, then lastly, back to Indiana, where he met Al Brady. In 1935, Al Brady asked Dahlhofer to join him on a couple robberies. Dahlhofer declined, not to be deterred. Al Brady decided to prove himself to Dahlhofer by bringing him a stolen car. For some reason, that worked, and the two began their partnership right there, and then... On October 19th, the dynamic duo robbed a movie theater and made off with about $18. That doesn't seem like a lot, and I'll be honest, I chuckled as I wrote the episode, but this would be about $360.41 today. I also want to remind you that movie tickets were just a quarter back then, and this was a Monday, so the till was a little shorter than normal. Once expenses were deducted, though, uh, Dalhover walked away with his own cut of $4. The two made off a little bit better on the next Saturday when they brought up a grocery store for $180, which would be $3,604.07 today. Soon after, a man named Clarence Lee Schaefer joined the gang. Schaefer had a similar history as his gangmates, the biggest difference being that he didn't move around as much as Dalhover. He started stealing and stripping cars at age 12 and continued his criminal activity from there. He served at Pendleton Correctional Facility, which also once housed John Dillinger. A man named Charles Giesking, who Schaefer hauled coal for, also became part of the Brady Gang for a little bit, but was incarcerated when the Brady Gang committed their most heinous crimes. Dullhover's farm served as the base for the gang, but they would plan their scores in the back room of an Indianapolis honky-tonk. Giesking... Schaefer and Brady would rob various places, grocery stores, gas stations, and the like. Supposedly, Brady thought Dillinger had ruined the bank robbing business and decided to hit smaller targets. But as time went on, the stakes got higher and higher. During a grocery store robbery, a shootout began that would injure two police officers. In December 1935, the gang also decided to start using Schaefer, the youngest and loudest member of the group, a little bit less because of his habit of getting drunk and blabbing. 
Brady, Dalhover, and Geist King would begin a big spree shortly after. One of them led to Danville, Illinois, where they robbed two grocery stores in one night. Maybe because of the great luck they had there in Danville, they went back. This trip was a little bit more messy. Brady himself entered the store and was later identified. And when they tried to make an escape, the police gave chase. Albrady proceeded to open fire. Later on, during the investigation, Albrady was identified by witnesses. This was a rarity, but it didn't matter because by the time he was identified, he was already gone. It was around this time that the gang learned that they were accused of the murder of John M. Levy, a police officer in Anderson, Indiana, which took place on the 25th of November, 1935. Anderson was a bad place at the time, had been going through some rough patches like most places in that era, but... No one really knows if the Brady gang killed Officer Levy. All that was known that Brady had passed through the town around the same time and probably stole a car or two while he was at it. Years later, a member would brag about the killing of Anderson, but charges were never pressed on anyone. Regardless, the Brady gang decided to lay low for a week in New Orleans, Louisiana, but not before robbing multiple jewelry stores, making out with around $55,000 worth of merchandise and hiring some Indianapolis sex workers to celebrate. The week they spent in the Big Easy wasn't just any other week. It was the week of Mardi Gras. The Brady Gang party went to some shows and rubbed elbows with some of the upper echelon New Orleans had to offer. Then one day, Albrady fell in love with a married woman named Margaret Larson, who thought he was an agent for the Federal Department of Justice. Unfortunately for Al, when he and Margaret went to meet with Margaret's husband, Mr. Larson, and the kid he shared with her, Mr. Larson refused to grant Margaret a divorce and gave her a month to change her mind. Brady was had a couple days later, though, so unfortunately, this love story doesn't end with a happy ending. Or does it? On a more serious note, the gang went back up north, and his stint in the Midwest was marked with bigger scores. And yet, another murder. Their actions during this leg of the spree also caused them to earn the attention of the FBI and the Pinkerton Agency. You see, when robbing a jewelry store in Greenville, Ohio, the gang made off with either eight dollars or $25,000 worth of stolen goods, including all the rings and, quote, high-end fountain pens. They even stole the trays the jewelry was on. Some think this was so they didn't leave fingerprints behind. So the J. Edgar Hoover-led FBI began to investigate whether or not these crimes were in their jurisdiction via the National Stolen Property Act of 1934. You see, the FBI could only get involved if the Brady Gang crossed state lines with the stolen goods. At the same time, the Jewelers Security Alliance hired the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, but the Brady Gang left so little evidence the best detectives in the country had trouble finding anything. Only thing they could go off was that two well-dressed young men robbed a jewelry store. All that work for $1,000 payout. That's right. But Albrady took the merchandise to a man named Jack Becker, whom he met because Al knew a guy who knew a guy who knew Becker. Jack only gave him $325 at first and then promised $1,000 because according to Jack Becker, the merchandise was junk. Angry but desperate, Al took the money. On March 16th, Albrady held up an internal revenue agent named Oliver J. Salinger outside of Oliver's home in Chicago. 
Aubrey pointed a gun at Salinger, told him to stick his hands up, and stole the gun right off Salinger's shoulder holster, along with $35 in cash and the keys to his car. Before Brady left, he told Salinger, They'll never catch me. I just caught Dillinger, but you ain't going to get me. On March 21st, at, while robbing a grocery store, Alberti shot and killed Edward Lindsay, a 23-year-old clerk who had just come up from the store's cellar to see what was going on and surprised Al. On a lighter note, remember that lady from New Orleans, Margaret? Well, nine days later, after he murdered Edward Lindsay, Margaret arrived in Chicago to see Al Brady. She had left her husband and declared she couldn't live without Al in a telegraph. Alan Dalhover picked Margaret up in Chicago. The couple spent the weekend together before Al had to go to Indianapolis for what he told Margaret was government business. He left her at her mother's house and told her he would call her every single day. Clearly, Brady was a huge catch. Of course, Brady wasn't doing government business. He was recruiting new people for the Brady Gang, specifically a new driver, because the one he currently had drove, quote, like an old lady, which is where he met Dago Jack Ryan. Dago Jack was a nickname of sorts. Dago is actually an ethnic slur for someone who speaks Italian, and honestly, I don't feel comfortable with that name, so we're just gonna call him Jack Ryan from now on. Jack Ryan had his own gang, and he planned to double-cross Al Brady. The Brady gang would rob a couple more places, including a jewelry store in Dayton, Ohio, where they were identified by multiple witnesses, including a reporter who was held at gunpoint, and others who had identified the plate number on the car, Etienne Studebaker, which came back as stolen. As I'm doing my research and writing this episode, it just sounds like the Brady gang was getting closer to getting caught, and that this gang was getting more sloppy because they kept being seen and identified. It is well known that real G's move in silence, but I think Albrady wanted to be seen. He wanted to be infamous. Albrady didn't want to be the next Dillinger. He wanted to make Dillinger look like a piker. I've used this term piker a couple times, and I just realized I never explained what it is. A piker is a gambler who only makes small bets. Regardless of Albrady's intentions, though, the gang knew what they were doing. The newspapers at the time acknowledged how professional the, the Brady gang was and how smart they were not to hold a mailman hostage when he entered the crime scene. That would have made a federal case. The papers also talked about their nice clothes and smooth work. Taking a set of tools from the store so they could remove the jewels from their settings. The Brady gang got in and they got out. By the time the cops knew what was going on 20 minutes later, the gang was on their way to a hotel where they parted with their lovers and gave them some of their stolen jewels. After the robbery, Brady and Dalhover met with Jack Ryan in an apartment. But when the three men got there, they found eight other gangsters waiting for Brady and Dalhover. Jack Ryan had set up the Brady gang. The larger gang took the loot and left Brady and Dalhover with little to nothing. On April 17, 1936, the gang returned to the K Jewelry Store in Lima, Ohio, in the car Albrady stole from Oliver J. Salinger. The cops quickly showed up, and a shootout ensued, in which their driver, Gies King, was shot in the leg. The gang piled into the car with five bags of loot, and the chase began. The two police officers crashed their cars en route, and blockades were, were called in. The National Guard also got involved. The Brady gang got away, but in doing so, crossed state lines in a car with stolen from a federal agent. The boxes 
the loot came in, were disposed of, and found in Geneva, Indiana. The FBI was now on their tail. The case starts to build from there. Ten days later, Dahover and Bray decide to take their driver, Giesking, to Dr. E.E. E. Rose. Dahover brought Giesking in while Brady stayed outside. Rose obviously knew that the jilted lover story that Dahover fed him was bogus, so he treated the wound but didn't take the bullet out and told them to come back later. E.E. E. Rose then called the cops and gave them the plate numbers of the cars that they arrived in. The police then sent out a message in code about the gang. The gang heard the message on the scanner, but didn't know it was about them. The gang figured they were safe until morning, even if they were reported. Later that evening, the gang came back. This time, it was Brady who went to E.E. E. Rose. Brady tried to get Dr. Rose to come with them to the hideout to treat these king. The doctor made up a story about needing extra tools and his wife escaped through the back door and called the police. Almost immediately after the police arrived, a shootout began, during which Sergeant Richard Rivers was shot and killed. Al Brady, ever the fearless leader, jumped out the window where some speculate he hid under a pickle factory loading dock while the other two made their escape via the car they came in. During the chase, the tire popped so the men had to double back to to their meetup spot. Al snuck up on his friends while they were changing their tires and let them know he was still alive. In an effort to cover their tracks, they set the cars on fire. The crew decided to lay low for a while after this. Despite their efforts, Bray was captured in a northern Chicago hotel where he was staying with his sweetheart. Brady confessed to the robbery in Lima. Brady was then taken back to Indianapolis where he was still facing charges for the murder of Sergeant Rivers. On May 6th, a safe deposit box in Chicago containing most of the loot from Lima and Dayton was discovered. Later on, May 11th, 1936, Schaefer was captured at his home in Indianapolis, and on the 15th, Dahlhover was also captured. On May 18th, another safety deposit box opened. Uh, this time in Indianapolis, the box contained a diamond ring, some uncut diamonds, and three automobile titles. Three men pointed fingers at each other about who actually killed Frank Livy. Brady also confessed to killing Sergeant Rivers, but later retracted it. While Brady waited in jail, the rest of his gang and various cohorts were captured. In September 1936, Brady, Dahover, and Schaefer were transferred to Hancock County Jail. On October 12th, they broke out, assaulting Sheriff Clarence Watson, stealing his gun while he brought them breakfast. Listeners in the know will know that a year later, almost to the day, Brady would meet his end in the town of Bangor, Maine. I'm just going to go off script for a bit. Um, we're about to get into where Albrady went to Maine. And of course, there was a year between where he broke out of prison and when he arrived in Bangor, Maine. But I think I've painted enough of the backstory here. You kind of do know that he he, uh, he was a bad person. And that's honestly um, what you need to know. But after they broke out of prison, the gang ran to Bridgeport, Connecticut to lay low. Brady wasn't satisfied, and in the late summer of 1937, the Brady gang decided to head north to a place that could continue to lay low, while also getting some supplies for more bigger scores. They thought the best place to do that was Maine, because they thought we were hicks. They thought we were dumb. 
On the night of September 20th, 1937, Albert stayed at the Auto Rest Park in Carmel. Brady arrived in Bangor, Maine the next day on September 21st, 1937, to buy supplies for their heist, specifically some Thompson guns. Uh, he's, he originally stopped at Augusta at what Public Enemy Number 1 by Trudy Irene C. calls Hussey Hardware. I'm not sure if this became Hussey General Store at some point, but if it did and you have never heard of Hussey's General Store... It has the sign out front that says guns, wedding gowns, and cold beer. And that's even just the beginning of what they sell. But mine shifted a bit. So uh, the clerk at Hussey Hardware recommended Brady to go to Dankin's Sporting Goods in Bangor, Maine. Dankin's Sporting Goods was located at 25 Center Street in Bangor, where the Briar Patch Bookstore is now. It was owned by Everett Shep Hurd. Everett Hurd grew up in Pittsfield, Maine, and went to the University of Maine. It was part of the Phi Kappa Sigma fraternity, which is where he earned the name Shep, because he would shepherd the sheep that grazed behind the frat house. He graduated from New Maine in 1917 with a degree in engineering. He is described by his family as an avid outdoorsman with a great sense of humor. Denkin was the place to go for all sorts of things. They also had a mail-order catalog. I could go and do a whole episode on Shep and Denkin's Sporting Goods and... Maybe I will someday for my shows coming up next. But kind of wanted to highlight Everett Heard and talk about who he was. On September 21st, 1937, the Brady Gang walked into Dankin's Sporting Goods purchasing ammunition and two Colt 45 automatic guns. They told Lewis Clark, the clerk who served them, that they were hunters, but something didn't seem right to them. They weren't dressed like hunters and they didn't sound local. Lewis told Heard, Heard informed the police. The next day... Dahlover and Schaefer went to Rice and Miller Sporting Goods on Broad Street, where they purchased three 32 caliber pistols. The manager of that store, C.E. Silsbury, thought that this was weird and also reported these characters to the police. It was at this point that the police chief, Thomas Crawley, called the FBI. On the 25th of September, Dahlover returned to Dankin and asked Everett Hurd if they stocked Tommy guns. Everett Hurd told him that they didn't mostly because it was illegal to sell them. Nonetheless, Everett offered to order them one. It was here that the trap was set. Tommy guns were rarely, if ever, used for hunting and were illegal to sell. Everett Heard told them to come back on the 12th, and they did. On the 12th of October, Everett Heard told his wife not to come to the store. Of course, this piqued her curiosity, so she did, and Everett had to escort her away. Dankin's Sporting Goods was not filled with its normal employees, but FBI agents, or G-men. Cars were positioned around the store, and machine gun was mounted across the street from the store. The gang arrived, and the agents closed them in, including a decoy trolley. Brady waited in the car. Schaefer waited outside the store, and Dahlhofer entered. He asked Everett Heard about the Tommy gun. It was at that moment that the two pistols were pointed at Dahlhofer's back. Dahlhofer fired some shots to warn his comrades, who also began shooting. The gang's Buick was surrounded, with Brady still inside. Brady exited his vehicle, promising to go easy, but quickly started firing. Brady was shot by those surrounding him, and he died instantly. Schaefer was also shot and killed. Dahlhofer was captured alive. A lot of the accounts about the Brady gang that exists today come from Dahover. He was convicted in Indiana of robbing banks and killing a state trooper and was executed via electrocution on November 18, 1938. Brady himself was buried in an unmarked grave in Mount Hope Cemetery. Some speculates that he haunts this grave, and we will get to that when we talk about the hauntings of Mount Hope some other time. His grave was marked eventually. I've seen it. Mom has been to it. Again, but that story is to be told 
much, much later. And that will do it for tonight's episode of the Jumping Frenchman podcast. This is my longest episode yet, and I hope you all liked it. I've been gone for a while, and I think I used a lot of that time to kind of research this properly. And if I missed anything, please let me know. Uh, I really wanted to show how the Brady Gang was, you know. I really wanted to show how bad they were. True crime is huge right now, and I thought I would kind of get in on it, but I can't do a lot of it because it's just, it bothers me, and it's kind of a trigger for me. I learned this the hard way when I was working on the Charlie Howard episode uh, that I can't do a lot of other things. But if you are looking for true crime about Maine, check out Dark Down East, uh, which is hosted by Kylie Lowe. I've talked to her, I've talked to her once. She's nice. And also just a, a great host. Uh, I listen to Dark Town East whenever I'm in the headspace for it. For Lighter Fair, if you want to listen to that episode and get to get started with, uh, check out their episode on the town of Flagstaff. That episode was perfect and honestly better than the way I covered it a couple months beforehand. One more shout out before I go. I couldn't have done this episode without the work of Trudy Irene C., who wrote the book Public Enemy Number 1, The True Story of the Breedy Gang, which is most of this episode is based on. Go buy it and read all of her books. Uh, she'll probably come up again in our Devil's Half Acre episode and other episodes, especially of the show that I'm announced, about to announce uh, shortly after this. Her newest book is about Penaquid Lighthouse, which we have already covered. That will be the episode for today. And thank you so much for listening. As always, bibliography is in the description as well as my Patreon. Like, share, subscribe wherever you listen. Follow us on Facebook and ring the bell on YouTube to receive notifications when I release a new episode. Thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a wicked friggin' awesome day, bubs. 